Hello and welcome to Urban Ambling. The idea of this concept is that there is much of interest and curiosity in our everyday surroundings if we can only find and have the time to walk a little bit more slowly and to look around. I should just mention that I've chosen the pod name of Makata, uh, but I won't worry explaining that now uh, and will do so towards the end. If you are in Sydney, either as a resident or a, a visitor and have the wonderful chance to have an amble, you could do a lot worse than start at the corner of George and Bridge Street in Sydney. One of the things I've always loved about Bridge Street is the wonderful open-ended view that you have as you look from George Street down the hill firstly and then up the long run to where Macquarie Street is. As you look up there, the palms which surround the Conservatorium of Music frame the magnificent statue of Edward VII riding on a horse. The other thing that should be said about Bridge Street is it has probably one of the most loveliest continuous collection of Victorian sandstone buildings of any street in Sydney. We'll deal with the immediate one shortly, but as we move further on, you'll come to the Lands Department firstly, then what was previously the Education Department, and finally, as one moves between Phillips Street and Macquarie Street, the Grand Chief Secretary's building. Bridge Street, for reasons which we'll talk about in a minute, was the second, in essence, European street in the colony. The other thing that's said about Bridge Street is that it has more statues for a given area than any other street in Australia. That uh, may or may not be right, but I'll leave that to others to determine. Before we set off uh, on the walk along Bridge Street, it's probably worthwhile to just pause for a moment and cast our minds back to the 25th of January, 1788, when the first fleet arrived at Sydney Cove. The spot on George Street, where you are presently standing, was back then basically a shelf of roughly level ground which ran down to the edge of what we now call Sydney Cove or Circular Quay and then ran away to the south. That sense of the topography is still apparent. It was for that reason that George Street in essence became the first track and later road and later street uh, in the continent. Looking now down Bridge Street, which is to the east, because Bridge Street roughly runs east-west, that area of land where we're looking down to Pitt Street in the first dip was described by Governor Phillip when he was carried ashore at a spot that was probably only about 100 metres from where you're standing now. And the reason for that is, is the shore of the cove was much closer to Bridge Street in the original times than it is now. But the description that Governor Philip gave as he was carried there was that there was a run of fresh water that stole silently along through a very thick wood. Almost impossible to believe now, but as you're looking down, that's the scene that you have to imagine. 
the stream of which he spoke, the fresh water that stole silently, it's a wonderful phrase, isn't it, was what we now call or came to be known as the tank stream. And it rose up in what is now called Hyde Park and flowed down from there to the spot we're talking about. On its way, it was joined by a couple of springs and it'll probably be no surprise to learn that one of those springs is roughly in the position that Spring Street is, which is a little to the south of where we're standing. We'll come to the spot where the tank stream was in a moment. But it's probably now time to move off and walk down the right-hand or southern side of Bridge Street. As we do, the first building, which you'll come to very shortly, there's a hotel on the corner, but you want to stop and look, you'll see the sandstone facade as you walk down, and that is the facade of a building which in its day was the headquarters of the Burns Philp Company. Now, that company and that building are worthy of a podcast of their own, which I hope to do uh, in due course. But it's sufficient to just say for the moment that it's a wonderful building, which has a bit of a Scottish look, which is not surprising given that Mr Burns was a Scot. The other thing is to just mention that that company was one of the very prominent trading companies uh, in the uh, 19th and early 20th centuries and principally traded with the other areas of the Pacific. Uh, For those of you who come from Sydney and are familiar with the area of Pennant Hills Road as it runs down towards Parramatta, there are a series of homes which were built for orphans, kids uh, who didn't have proper parenting many years ago, and they were called the Burnside Homes, and they were in fact endowed by that same Mr Burns. As you move down a little further from that, you almost get to the bottom of the hill to what is Pitt Street, and if you look down on the ground, you'll notice that there's a metal and plastic mark which marks the line of the tank stream where it did run in its time. And uh, there's also a street which used to be called something else, but it's now called, I think, Tank Stream Place or something similar. It's worthy just mentioning at this point that Bridge Street perhaps entirely obviously uh, got its name because it had at one point a bridge uh, over it to provide access to both sides. That's over the tank stream. What happened is in the early times when Governor Philip arrived, the basic layout he provided for in the first instance was that on the eastern side, running east of the tank stream, uh, he uh, pitched his tent along with the other principal um, uh, government officials And on the Western or George Street side is where the convicts were housed and the military barracks, etc., were positioned. So Bridge Street would have initially just been a track with some sort of rough uh, wooden ford over it to provide access from the east to the west. Uh, Obviously enough, because of its significance, that changed in time with the construction of a bridge in proper form. And the foundations for that first significant bridge were started on the 5th of June, 1803, and were completed thereafter. Uh, Bridge Street wasn't formally named until 1810, which is a time when the then governor decided that 
he would name various streets, and at that time both Bridge Street was formally named as was George Street and various other streets which were all named after various members of the then royal family. As you wander down a bit further, you cross Bridge Street and you'll come to a fairly nondescript office building on your right-hand side. But it's worth stopping there because if you go up a little further, you'll find a wonderful sandstone pediment which was placed there when that building was built in the, the late 1960s. The building that was built there was called the Royal Exchange and it was a, a very significant commercial hub in uh, its time in um, Sydney. It was the gathering place for all sorts of merchants and it was also, interestingly, a gathering place for ships' captains when they'd come in from the sea and they'd often come up there to talk and do business deals and uh, various other things. Uh, And it became thus known as the Albatross Club because they used to uh, uh, come up there obviously and have a drink as well as uh, attend to their business. Some of the prominent visitors who came there was two were Joseph Conrad and also Robert Louis Stevenson. Now, if I can just pause there, there's a very funny comment attributed to Robert Louis Stevenson, which runs as follows. When I think of Melbourne, I vomit. Its flatness, its streets laid out with a square rule are certain to have a detrimental effect on those who are doomed to dwell by the yellow waters of the Yarra. Now, one must say that you've got to treat that comment with a bit of caution because apparently Robert Louis Stevens never went to Melbourne. But clearly enough, in the confines of the Albatross Club or perhaps at the Union Club, where he apparently used to lodge, uh, he was subject to a lot of uh, Sydney Sider's views of Melbourne, which he picked up. But it's a, it's a fairly wonderful description in any event. But some of the things that were associated with the Royal Exchange are quite Interesting. In 1880, it was there that the first telephone, the first basic telephone system in Sydney was set up. And by 1882, the little new telephone system had 300 lines operating. And there is still uh, then, as now, a real estate agency called Richardson and Wrench, and they were the ones who got in first and their number was number one. The Royal Exchange was also a great uh, place for um, the wool trade and people involved in the wool trade. Uh, And it was also where the first stock exchange in Sydney uh, was housed in 1872. Sadly, comma, as I mentioned before, the building was demolished in 1965, but as said, someone at least had the foresight to preserve the pediment, which is the thing I mentioned before. So as we walk on past the, that building, you'll notice for the first time on your right and straight, really straight ahead, two of the facades of the uh, wonderful Lands Department building. Uh, it's now substantially vacant, but that takes nothing away from its splendour. But before we return to the Lands Department building, we'll just take the opportunity to walk across Bridge Street to walking north to cross at the lights, of course, at Pitt Street, and you walk up a little and you come upon uh, a wonderful triangular park. Uh, This is uh, Macquarie Place and it's got numerous points of interest which are worth having a look at. The first thing you'll see as you walk towards it 
There's a very large statue, and that's of a very prominent early businessman of the colony called Thomas Sutcliffe Mort. Uh, and you'll see from the uh, plaque below that he was engaged in all sorts of commerce and was a very significant person in the colony. And he, of course, will be worthy of an app which will come, hopefully, not too long off. If you then wander into the uh, little park, and that's an easy thing to do, you'll come upon a wonderful wooden anchor, which was the anchor of the ship, the Sirius, which was one of the ships in the First Fleet that brought the Europeans here. It had a very interesting history. It was uh, lay on a wreck on Norfolk Island for many years until a a civic-minded person retrieved it and brought it back so that we've got it there. If you then walk through, again, northerly towards the next street, you'll notice you can't miss it. It's a large sandstone obelisk. But this is significant, as the inscription will tell you, that it was erected in, um, I think it was about 1818, by a very prominent architect who had, in fact, come out as a convict, called Francis Greenway, and he was responsible for numerous wonderful buildings, some of which we still have the great joy to have. Uh, But that point uh, was, and probably still is, the point from which all road distances were measured in the colony. If you come back out onto the street and walk back to Bridge Street, again crossing at the lights, you'll see again the, what is in essence, the front facade of the wonderful Lands Department building. It's a Victorian building and built uh, in sandstone. The building was erected in stages, but the construction started firstly in 1876 and went on from there. It was designed uh, by an architect called James Barnett, who again was a very significant architect and has been responsible for many buildings, including many lighthouses up and down the coast. It's said to be in the Italian Renaissance style, but whatever style it is, it's wonderful. Can I just say that the building's interesting because with the various floor levels, the floor space is in fact three acres, which is just extraordinary. When you reach the building, turn back, if you would, to your right or again heading west and just walk down to the front of the lands department and then go a little further from the door, only a few metre or so, and you'll notice at a level of about your hip there's a brass plug in the wall and there's a plate near it which says this, and you'll see it, the top of this plug is 27 feet, three and a quarter inches above mean high tide and 28 feet and 11 and a quarter inches above mean sea level. Now, just as the obelisk in the Macquarie Place was for the measuring of road distances, this plug was the point from which all heights were calculated in the colony. Now, one thing you'll notice, and you've got to walk around the lands department and look up at each corner because there's niches, some of which are occupied and some of which aren't, of various personages, and they're wonderful statues and worth really looking at carefully. Now, The original idea um, in 1890 by the then very prominent and famous Premier of New South Wales, Sir Henry Parks, was that the statues should be those of people who devoted themselves to the exploration of uh, Australia. Now, as is perhaps unsurprising to everyone, after a while the explorers uh, 
were less uh, glorified than the politicians. But I want at this point just to say to walk for you to walk down the Lands Department, turn left into uh, Loftus Street and walk up and have a look at the statues on that next corner of Bent Street and Loftus Street. And there is there a statue to a bloke called Dennehy, D-E-N-I-E-H-Y. Now, I remember this statue very well because I recall one day I was walking in the course of my work up and I just happened to pause and look at the statues and saw Dennehy. And I thought to myself, and I've lived in Australia and for most of the time in Sydney all my life, I wondered who on earth was this Dennehy chap. So I decided to make some inquiries and he was a a most interesting chap. He was born in Kent Street, not far from where we are, on the 16th of August 1928. But sadly, his life only ran till the 22nd of October 1865, uh, being about 43 years. Of course, unfortunately, he had a significant problem with alcohol. And a book was written about him, which I very luckily found one day, right on the bottom of a shelf at Berkeley's in Leichhardt. It was written by a wonderful journalist and author, Cyril Pearl, back in 1972. And Pearl described Dennehy, brilliant Dan Dennehy, a forgotten genius, Daniel Henry Dennehy, perhaps the most gifted native-born Australian of his century, came from a distinguished lineage of convicts. That was because both his parents had been convicts, but uh, his father served his term and was able to prosper in business and was able to send young Daniel to a good school. And that was a school called W.T. Capes Private School, which used to stand on the corner of Philip and King Street opposite St James Church. Dennehy entered Parliament for a period and was very prominent in the large fights that took place in the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s about land reform, in other words, reducing the land holdings of the squatters and allowing small landholders to have a chance to take up some land. And he was only in the Parliament for four years, but he was a champion for that. And what he said in the bill was being, when a bill was being debated in the Legislative Assembly in 1857, I contend that it's the sacred duty of a statesman in dealing with a question of such magnitude to give the preference to agriculture, for it is that which mainly gives a love of home and country and promotes industry, thrift and happiness throughout a community. I say this without in the slightest desiring to damage the pastoral interests, which at present, I admit, produce the chief staple of the economy. The real issue to be fought out by this bill is not against the squatters as a class, but against the greedy capitalist who seeks to monopolise the entire lands of the colony and to provide posterity of their fair inheritance. And that has a ring that still is present these days. The sad thing with Dennehy, as I said, is he uh, he had a problem with alcohol. He collapsed and died in Bathurst uh, in the Midwest of New South Wales. And his obituary in the Empire newspaper went thus, Daniel Henry Dennehy, Dennehy, poet, orator, statesman, one of the most accomplished and gifted men of his time, one of the brightest geniuses New South Wales has yet produced, has passed from among us. 
endowed with extraordinary vigour of mind, possessing intellectual faculties, vouchsafed to few on this earth, blessed with a memory capable of storing all the riches which scholarly industry could cull from the great dead and living masters, deep in learning, unassuming in manners, warm-hearted in affection, generous in disposition, chaste writer. Such was D.H. Dennehy of early life, and such, dropping the veil of charity over those weaknesses of his later days, is the memory of him we should desire kept green in years to come. A very moving and warm farewell uh, to someone who was obviously an enormously talented but sadly flawed character. Henry Lawson, the great Australian poet, uh, wrote of Dennehy, Southern men of letters seeking kinder fields across the wave tell a shameful tale entitled Dennehy's Forgotten Grave. Given Henry Lawson's own battles with alcohol, he probably had very considerable sympathy for Dennehy's plight. So there's just a brief description of one of those people, but a most interesting description of a character who would probably otherwise have been entirely forgotten. And as I said, uh, just to finish, uh, I've chosen the pod name of Bacata because uh, he was a person who lived in what would now be part of Belgium, Flanders, in the uh, 1600s. And he produced maps on projections, which are still used to some extent today, all that time later. But the astonishing thing about Makata is he probably never went further than about 100 or 150 kilometres from his home, but was able to produce maps, which, as I say, we still use today. That's it. I think that's long enough. Until next time, please take the chance to amble and, above all else, stay safe and well. Till then, cheerio.